kids. Some of you know that your kids, some of you might be wondering if your kids, if you think you might be, then I'm talking to you. I'm definitely talking to some of you in particular, the ones that I think of as kids. Kids, I've got some questions for you. So need extra kid participation today. Do you know what a hammer is? A hammer. Do you know what a hammer is? Okay, I have a few hammers at my house, uh, but I'm not sure if I'm using them correctly. Is this, what do you think? Am I, am I using my hammer correctly? No. no, okay, hmm. All right, what about pillows? What is a, what is a pillow made for? Lying on, what's a pillow Okay, well, uh, that would explain the difficulty I had last night trying to hammer that nail with a pillow. I don't think I'm using that the way that it's supposed to be used. What do you think? Connor, what do you think, buddy? No? Hmm. Yeah, everything has a purpose, uh, and things can get silly or frustrating or worse when we use something that's different from its purpose. But what about you? Do you, kids, I'm still talking to you, adults, whatever, kids, do you have a purpose? What do I mean by that? Do you, are you alive for a reason? Yes, you do have a purpose, but have you ever wondered what your purpose is? See, because everything was made by God for a purpose, one purpose. Actually, everything was made for the same purpose. At Romans 11, verse 36, Paul talks about this, that from him, from God, and through God, and to God are all things. What is not included in all things? All things means all things. So hammers and pillows and you all made for one purpose, that to him would be glory forever. You're included in that. You are here right now from God, through God, and and to him, all things, including you. We have the same purpose. Everything created has the same purpose, the purpose of showing how great and wonderful God is. So a hammer hammers a nail, not not helps you with Cheerios, for the glory of God. And pillows are soft for the glory of God. And you are sitting here to show how great and wonderful God is. That's why you were made. That's why you were alive right now. A couple weeks ago, I talked about thankfulness. Talked about showing appreciation to God for kindness that he has shown us. And when we really understand how much God has given us, we were to say, right, Thanksgiving is a season coming up and we all start to think about how many things we can be thankful for. And so in that, we need, to, we need to be thankful to someone for something. God has given us things that we should be thankful for, that we should appreciate. We should be thankful for our lives. You're alive today. We should be thankful for the food that we have eaten today and that we will eat today, that we ate tomorrow. We should be thankful for our families. We should be thankful for our homes. We should be thankful for our friends, everything that we enjoy. And when we understand how much God has given us all of those things, then we will want to please him. We recognize everything that has come into our lives, everything that we enjoy, and we enjoy so many things every single day. 
We've enjoyed things, whether we recognize it or not, today. Even if it's the friend that you're sitting next to, that is from God. And when we recognize all that God has done for us, we will want to please him. But there is a problem, the problem of sin. Your sin. My sin. The sin that fills our hearts keeps us from wanting to please God. The sin that is in your hearts keeps you from wanting to please God. Have you ever tried a food and not liked it? I don't like olives. As many times as I've tried, as much convincing as Leanne tries to have, I just don't like them. But have you ever decided to not like something before you tried it? Maybe you wanted spaghetti for dinner. You like spaghetti? Or I like spaghetti. Maybe you wanted, you wanted spaghetti because you love spaghetti, but your mom decides to make tacos instead of spaghetti. Maybe you like tacos more. If so, you could flip the illustration. That's fine. You wanted spaghetti. She's making tacos. And so from the moment you hear that you're having tacos for dinner instead of spaghetti, you decide deep in your heart that you don't want tacos. Matter of fact, you don't like tacos. You hate tacos. And no matter how much your mom wants you to eat them, you will not eat those tacos. No matter what. Why? What did those tacos ever do to you? Nothing. Matter of fact, the day before, you liked tacos. But today, you don't like tacos because you wanted spaghetti. It's not about the tacos. It's about you being upset in your heart and not wanting to do what pleases your mom. Have you felt that before? Just this, mm-mm, not gonna do it. No matter what it is, I'm not gonna do it. That is sin in our hearts, and we're like that with God. Whether we know it or not, whether you know it or not, we are angry at God. We are enemies against him. We're born that way and we don't want anything to do with him and we want him to leave us alone. We don't want him to tell us what to do. We don't like that he tells us what to do and we don't want to do whatever he wants us to do. Matter of fact, when when we find out what he wants us to do, that automatically becomes the thing we don't want to do. This is because sin has ruined our hearts. Sin keeps you from wanting to please God. And sin also keeps you from being able to please God. It's like your hands are covered in mud, like nasty, wet, drippy mud. And you come in from playing in that mud with your filthy hands, and then you're trying to fold clean laundry. And no matter how careful you are, what's going to happen to every single pair of socks and every single towel and every single shirt? What's going to happen to it? It's going to get muddy because you are muddy. Because you are muddy, whatever you do becomes muddy. And your mom's not going to like that. In the same way, our sin dirties everything that we do. Every good thing that we might try becomes dirty because we have touched it in our sin. Because of our sin, We don't want to please God, and even if we think we do, we cannot please God. That's what our sin does to us. But you were made to please the Lord. That's why you were made. That's why you exist. 
but you don't want to, and you can't because of your sin. Because of your sin, you are not pleasing to the Lord. And it gets even worse than that. Because you won't please the Lord like you were made to do, you are disobeying him and you are displeasing to him. And there is a punishment for disobedience. There's a punishment for sin. I know very well about punishments for disobedience. Anytime I'm in a room with people my entire life, I've loved to talk. Even if I wasn't the one in front, matter of fact, if I was the one sitting in the chair in the desk to this day, I want to be the one talking. And so I missed out on recess at school. Homeschoolers, it's when you get to go outside, not because your mom tells you you have to, uh, because your teacher tells you that you get to. So it's, it's a good thing if falls short. I was not homeschooled, uh, so I knew what recess was, and I longed for recess, and I spent so much of recess sitting on a wall or basically like in a type of detention because I wouldn't keep my mouth shut. So I knew about the punishment for talking was missing out on recess. Uh, I knew and experienced, because I have loving parents who are here, I don't know, they can testify to all this, I disobeyed my parents, and I got a punishment for that. That punishment frequently was spanking. That was unpleasant. I knew that. Knew that sting and that consequence because I had disobeyed, I got a spanking. Normally I don't speed. I told this story before. When we were on our trip, wasn't paying attention to the speed limit. It was ironic because how, I couldn't even drive the speed limit most of the time, but in that one town in uh, Wyoming, I could drive the speed limit. I could drive faster than the speed limit. I did drive faster than the speed limit and I paid a ticket for that. There were consequences. There was a punishment for the fact that I broke the law, that I broke those rules. There are punishments for our disobedience, but the punishment for our disobedience against God, the punishment for our not pleasing him like we should is far worse than missing recess or a spanking or a speeding ticket. God has said in the Bible that the punishment for our sin is death now and forever. Death now might sound scary, but death forever is terrifying. The Bible describes it as being thrown into a lake of fire where we suffer forever. That is how serious our sin is, our disobedience, the fact that we will not and cannot live pleasing to the Lord. And that is a bad problem. But there's an even better solution to fix our problem The solution for our sin is Jesus. A better solution than how bad the problem is. And the problem is bad. Jesus lived his whole life without ever sinning. Not even once. Not a single sin. He did what he was made to do. Jesus pleased God with his whole life. And when he died on the cross, he was willingly being punished, not for his sins, but he was being punished for all of our sins. For my talking in class and for my disobeying my parents, for all of the consequences of what I've done wrong, Jesus was punished instead, taking all of it so there's no punishment for me. And then three days later, his dead body became new and alive again when Jesus rose from the dead. 
And when we talk about believing in or trusting in Jesus, we mean, and this is important because we throw around words. Kids, this is still to you. You all listening to me? When we talk about trusting Jesus, we talk about believing in Jesus, we mean knowing who Jesus is according to the Bible, that he is the son of God who became human like us. And we need to know why he lived and died. Jesus lived and died to be punished for our sins instead of us so that we could be forgiven by God. Forgiven so that we don't have to suffer the punishment that our sins deserve. When we know who Jesus is, we know why he lived and died, we can accept the gift that he offers us, a forgiveness and a new life, or we can reject it. That gift is the forgiveness for our sins and a whole new life, a life that can fulfill our purpose. You were made for a purpose, a purpose to please God. You can't please God because of your sin, but Jesus makes you new so that you can fulfill your purpose. You can please God. And that life, that life that is new, that life that pleases God also includes a life with God as our perfectly and wonderfully loving heavenly father. We are forgiven and we are adopted into God's family. And this new life is like a second chance to fulfill our purpose. But this time, we can do it. We can fulfill our purpose of pleasing God and we can please God, not because we're doing it better or just because there's a second chance, but we can please God because we are forgiven and because God is with us to help us please him. The first time you were on your own and you were covered in sin and you couldn't do it, but now you've been cleaned of your sin when you've trusted in Jesus and you have God with you to help you to be able to please him. We are forgiven followers of Jesus and adopted sons and daughters of God Even when that is true, when we've trusted in Jesus, we are forgiven, we are adopted, God is our loving Heavenly Father, we are still called to please Him. The difference is that now we want to. And now we can because we have Jesus' help to do what we were made to do. I like all of you. Adults too, but again, I'm just not talking to you right now. In fact, I love all of you by name, deeply. It makes me happy to see you here, you, and you, Selah, and you, and you too, Isaiah, but you're on that line. You're you're, you're a kid for this. And of course, I love all of you. I'm glad that you're with us in our gathering each week. I'm glad you're here. Not just you're tagging along with your parents, but I'm glad that you are here with us. But I have to be honest, I don't don't love all of you the same. I have my favorites among the children of our church. Shocking, I know. And really, it isn't even close. My favorite children are Elise and Juliet watching from home, and Adele watching from home, and Maria, and James, and Liliana. Shocking that they're my favorites. Kai, are you still surprised? <laughs> Kai, Kai's surprised. 
Well, you shouldn't be surprised that I love them more than I love all of the rest of you. Why? Because they are what? They are my children. They are my daughters and my son. In the same way, you are your parents' favorite children who are here. Most days. There are two ways that we can think about pleasing the Lord. One way is by our being pleasing to God simply because he has made us his children. That is a way that we are pleasing to God. This is the happy love that I have as a father toward my children, and it has nothing to do with how they've acted today or ever or what they've done for me. I just love them because I'm their dad and they're my kids, and they are pleasing to me. Mia, Elise, Juliet, Adele, James and Lily. Where are they? They're like there or there. Maybe they hear me. I don't know. I love them just because they're my children. Little baby Lowell Fry is loved by and pleasing to Mr. Isaac and Miss Michaela. And truth be told, he has not done anything to please them. All he's done is eat and cry and sleep and um, make his diapers dirty. But the very fact that he is their son means that he is pleasing to them. We trust in Jesus. God is our father. That's the first way that we are pleasing to him. It's not be pleasing to him. It's know that you are pleasing to him. Because by faith in Jesus, we have become part of God's family. And he is our father. And we are his son. We are his daughter. We are pleasing to him. There's the second way, though, I kind of want to lean into. We need to know that one. You have to know that you are pleasing to God just through faith in Jesus that you are his child. Then there's another way that we talk about pleasing the Lord. That's pleasing the Lord through our obedience to him. And you know this is true in your family as well. Let me explain. If your mom says to clean your room, she is not pleased with you if you disobey her, right? Mom says clean the room and you don't clean the room. Is mommy happy? Come on. All right, I got a shaking ahead. Mommy's not happy, right? That's right. Mommy is not happy, even though you are still loved by her as her child. You don't get turned out. As much as she might threaten, she's not going to kick you out of the house. Because you're her son, you're her daughter. If your dad says to take out the trash and you obey him, does that make him happy? Yes, he is pleased with you, but you are loved simply because you are his child. With God's help, we can please him through our obedience to him. And Colossians chapter 3 talks about this. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. All right, kids only. Parents, will get to you in a minute. Adults, you're listening anyway. That's sort of the point. I want to see if these kids can understand this verse. All right, I'm going to ask some super hard interpretation questions for this passage. You ready? You can take a deep breath and be ready for this. Okay. Children, who are you supposed to obey? God, yes. What does the verse say? Obey your parents. Good. We're one for one. Obey your parents. Okay. How many things are you supposed to obey your parents in? April? In everything. You guys are doing great. You understand the Bible. Children, obey your parents in everything. Okay, here it is. Why 
Are you supposed to obey your parents in everything? Yeah. Because the Lord commands it. And the verse says, for this what? This pleases the Lord. Obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. We were made to please the Lord. And through a relationship with Jesus, we can please uh, please the Lord. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are forgiven of your sins. You will want to please the Lord. And over your whole life, you will grow in wanting to please the Lord more. And as a child, one of the primary ways that you obey your heavenly father and one of the ways, the primary way that you are pleasing your heavenly father is by obeying your earthly parents, your dad, and your mom. In fact, and I think this is important, you cannot please or obey your heavenly father without obeying your parents. You cannot please your heavenly father that you have not seen without obeying your earthly father and mother that you can see because God has put them over you. This is the place where you, are in your, where you are in your lives right now, where God has put you. And we are to please God wherever God puts us. You are children under parents. You are to, ple- to please the Lord by obeying them in everything. And just like Pastor Keith said last week, wives first love and submit to who? This can be everybody. Wives first submit to who? Christ, right? God. They're capital H husband, right? So we please him, we submit to him, and then there's submission under that. And husbands are first called to love and submit to, it's the same answer, Christ. And then there's a relationship with their wives. So it doesn't just start off with these earthly relationships. There's this ultimate relationship first. And so children, you obey your heavenly father through obeying your earthly parents. Do you see? There's still that. There's something ultimate that always takes us back to Jesus. Now, I like building things out of wood. I've talked about that before. Bunk bed, uh, table, different bed. Uh, this box on this stage, making a box for Juliet right now. And building things takes time. And it's slow and it's gradual and it's just ongoing, especially when you take like months breaks sometimes. But you take this rough wood and you measure it and then you cut it and then you glue it and you throw that away and you have to start again because you measured wrong and then you sand it so that you can make something out of the wood that is more than just the wood. You take the rough stuff You do all this stuff, take this whole process in order to make something more. When you trust in Jesus, you are not at that moment the final finished product. You're not the table. You're being made into a table. You are a project that God is working on to make into Really, the image of Jesus. When you trust in Jesus, that's just the beginning of God's work to build and shape you according to his plan for you. And you now have a whole life of change ahead of you. We trust in Jesus. That's the start of the change. Change that will work through our whole lives. But you will change because God is at work in you. 
And our faith in Jesus shows itself in a changing life. It shows itself. We have a change, a life that God is changing to be more like Jesus. And as a child, that change is going to be seen first and most clearly in your obedience to your parents. That's where the change shows itself most clearly in children who are following Jesus. And that all sounds good. Especially the parents are loving this whole sermon so far, but I'm going to talk to us parents in a minute too. I want to be honest with you about that. You are still going to disobey your parents. Follower of Jesus, not follower of Jesus. You are going to disobey your parents. Even if you truly are a forgiven follower of Jesus, even if you truly are an adopted son or daughter into God's family, you will disobey. But when you disobey, that does not mean you are no longer forgiven. And that does not mean that you are no longer a part of God's family. You disobey your mom and dad. They don't kick you out of the house. We disobey God, even as followers of Jesus. When we're part of his family, we don't just get booted to the curb, sent packing. But when you disobey, our faith will show itself in what happens next. Our faith shows itself in obedience, obeying our parents to please the Lord. But there's how we respond to disobedience that also can be pleasing to the Lord. So what does a child, a follower of Jesus, what do we do when we disobey God by disobeying our parents? And your relationship with Jesus will be seen after you disobey by you first admitting that you were wrong to God and to your parents. Have you ever had an explanation to your mom? What happened? Such and such. Well, my sister, stop. Like, we don't allow that. Right? You hit. Well, she. No, not she. You. Right? And until you're like, you know what? Yes, I was angry and I did wrong. I sinned against my sister. I sinned against Parents, I sinned against God. Admitting that you were wrong is the first step of showing that you are a follower of Jesus. Admitting that to your mom and dad, admitting that to your heavenly father in prayer, we call this confession. Confession, admitting of sin. It was me, it was my sin. I broke the rule, I did wrong. That shows that you are a follower of Jesus. That's how a follower of Jesus responds to disobedience. There's also, though, another step, a step when, when we disobey, if we're a follower of Jesus, we remind ourselves of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. We remind ourselves of the gospel. So you don't just admit, I did wrong, I, I am a sinner. But if you've trusted in Jesus, you are still pleasing to God as his son. You're still pleasing to God as his father. You're still forgiven of the sin that you just did commit. You need to remind yourself of that. Remind ourselves a thousand times a day, if necessary, Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of this sin. Every time that you do wrong, every time that you disobey, you need to remind yourself, Jesus paid for this sin. He was punished in my place. I deserve to be punished, but he was punished for me. God will not punish me for this sin because of what Jesus did. I trust in him to be forgiven now and always. You didn't stop being a son or a daughter to start before you ask that forgiveness again, but that's why it's reminding yourself 
of the gospel a thousand times. And then really, we, we go further. As a follower of Jesus, wanting to do something different, we, we commit to obey with God's help. Oh, I did, that was wrong, I'm sorry, I'm gonna go do it again. That doesn't show a heart change. And Jesus is working to change our hearts. So we admit that we were wrong, we confess that, right? And we also remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. And then in prayer, we say, God, please help me to not do this again. Help me to not talk like this to my mom. Help me not act like that toward my sister. Help me not to take those things that don't belong to me. Committing to obey with God's help. Those things also show what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Probably sounds very similar to how we become a follower of Jesus. Because it is. Because becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't mean just believing and saying things one time. It means a whole new life of admitting that we were sinners, reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what he has done, right? And wanting to please God and asking God to help us to please him. Before we can move on to the next verse, and we're going to move on to verse 21 now. This is adults now. You can all start listening. Kids, please keep listening. But now I'm going to talk to your mom and dad, to all of us. Adults, both husbands and wives, children and fathers, whoever else we are, we need to have it very clear in our minds, first and foremost, that God is our father and that we are his children, right? which means the same thing, right? He's our father, we are his children. I need to know that not because of just my relationship with him through David Ambler, Beverly Ambler, right? Not just because I have a relationship to them, but in my relationship to Leanne and to Elise, Juliet, Adele, Maria, James, and Liliana, I need to know I am a child of God and that he is my father. I have to know that before I can move from verse 20 into 21. Because all, all fatherhood, my fatherhood, your fatherhood, if you're a father, your, your parenthood, all of it, actually it exists, families exist to reflect or image God's fatherhood. We didn't just make up the idea of family and then God was like, that sounds good. Like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to use that as an illustration to point back to me. Like, that's totally reversed. God is father eternally and then put that image, a shadow of it, into all of creation, into every society, so that any person who hears the gospel and finds out that God is willing to be a father will know exactly what that means. God's fatherhood comes first. And so my fatherhood, if you're a father, your fatherhood and all of our family, it exists to reflect or image God's fatherhood. So how does the fatherhood of God impact our fatherhood here on earth? What does fatherhood look like for those who are in Christ? For those who confess him as Lord, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him as a Christian father. To take chapter 2 verse 6 and push it together with chapter 3 verse 21. What does fatherhood look like for those who walk in Christ by his Holy Spirit? Well, starting with the texts that we have come that have come before, it's going to look like putting off and it's going to look like renewing our minds, having our minds renewed, and it's going to look like putting something on. Because that's what Paul's been doing. This is what it means to walk in Christ, seeking the things that are above, putting to death what is earthly, 
right? Having a mind that is transformed as to who God is and who you are, what's even possible because of the Holy Spirit's work, and then putting on for the glory of God, giving thanks and doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, all of that, all these verses that we've talked about for the last 11 months, all then come to bear on Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I mean, short and snappy. Paul's just like, husbands or wives, boom. Husbands, boom. Children, boom. Fathers, boom. He's going to be like slaves, a little bit more than boom. He goes a little bit further. Slaves, masters. He's like every part of a household like Keith talked about. No matter what your sphere is, walk in Christ, walk in Christ, walk in Christ, walk in Christ, walk in Christ. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. A father who has been made new in Christ. A father who is filled in Christ. A father who is complete in Christ. Living joyfully under the supremacy of Jesus over all things will put to death the provoking and discouraging of his children. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. When I think of the word provoke, I think of poking or, or prodding. Uh, I was, technically am, a little brother, bigger, taller little brother, shorter than me, but little brother, to two older sisters. And as a little brother, I was annoying. Uh, I took delight in poking at my sisters, uh, sometimes literally poking them, and sometimes figuratively poking them, uh, uh, poking and pushing and prodding them, trying to get a certain response out of them. A response typically that would sound something like, stop it, you're so annoying. And it's hard to explain why that was and really even is so satisfying to me. Uh, it remains so with my, with my children and, uh, and my wife and maybe some of you. I just, uh, I don't know. It's inexplicable, really. Uh, but Poking or pushing them in order to draw out a response is provoking. And I, I don't think that this text boils down to fathers not annoying their children with corny jokes and, and relentless puns. I, I looked at the Greek words to desperately hope it didn't include that. And uh, I've, I've come up pretty good. So I, I think I'm okay on that one. But other attitudes and other actions and other words from a father can and do provoke his children intentionally or carelessly pushing them toward certain responses. I think there are three ways that we can provoke our children that we need to consider carefully. And this is written to fathers. Um, moms, you're not really off the hook, right? Because there's a parental aspect of this. But it addresses fathers directly, but the Spirit point out to all of us where we do this in so many different relationships. We can provoke our children in what, uh, just for a lack of a better term, I'm going to call like an active overbearing aspect of it. Parenting, fathering out of anger, filled with anger toward our children. Uh, uh, I mean that this, this active overbearing aspect and in a harshness and in a relentless criticism. I think we can do this and provoke our children by too many instructions and too many commands. Because this is what I wonder. When we pile rule upon rule and command upon man, a command upon command, and all of these things, we start to pile them up on our children. I start to wonder, is that for 
my sake? Is that for my convenience? Or is it for their good and for the glory of God? Because it's not automatic. So much of fathering or or parenting or rules that we would create are, are, are really for us, not for them. And that'll look like a wielding authority. We call abusing authority. Yes, authority could be spoken of as a wielding. But when I say wielding, I have, I have an image in mind of taking like that sharp sword of authority and just swinging it around recklessly and angrily and not really caring what the damage is that comes through that. Does some authority do that? Yes. Because we're fallen people. And as fathers, as mothers, are we just throwing commands out and just whacking through for our convenience and to avoid little annoyances? Or is it for, or are we exercising authority humbly for the sake of our children and for their flourishing? And I was convicting last week as Keith talks about the responsibility of husbands to see that those under their care, including their wives, that they flourish. And I think that applies to children as well. Are our children flourishing? Are we, are we tending them in, like, in, the, in their weakness and in their immaturity and in their youth? Or are we stomping that down for our own convenience? Overbearing and be too harsh in punishment. With your words, with your attitudes, with your actions, are you, so with your words, maybe you say this, with your attitude, maybe you demonstrate this, or with your actions. So this could be explicit. Sometimes it is from certain fathers. And sometimes it's implied that a child would have this provoked, drawn out for them. You know what? Whatever I do is never good enough. That is a crushing weight of discouragement. Whatever I do, A should have been A+. Plus. Scored this goal, should have scored two goals. I cleaned up this part of my room, but I didn't make my bed perfectly. I tried to do this, it just wasn't enough. Never enough. I'm not enough. I'll never please my dad. I'll never please my mom. And that reflects on our Heavenly Father. An active overbearing, right? And sometimes you... Sometimes you want that, like we, God deliver us from this. And this overbearing, this, this overactive parenting or fathering with no mercy, with no compassion is so radically unlike God, our heavenly father. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. As a father has, you know the Psalm? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Dads, do you remember that your children are children? That they're acting immature because they are immature? Do we have a grace and a mercy toward them like our father has toward us? You can beam down, bear down, and crush, and that is not fathering. And I know that because that's not how God treats us. It's not the only way that we can provoke our children, though. I think we can also provoke our children in a passive not fathering. Again, maybe not the best ways of saying this, but I hope I can get this across. What does this look like? This could look very reactionary to bad fathering. 
that we've seen or that we've experienced. So as so often happens, we, we don't just react to, to something that we see go wrong. We, we almost always overreact. And so you can go from like, my father's like, nothing was ever good enough and, and all these things and all this overbearing and all of this correction and all this harshness. So I'm not going to instruct at all. I'm not going to give any commands. I'm not going to lay down any rules and there are not going to be any consequences. I'm just going to be friends with my kids. I just want us all to just like each other. So no instruction and no correction and no consequences. This is, past, this is failing to father. It could be a laziness. I just convicted about this. I have so many things in a day, so many things that I want to do, and then just being lazy and failing to take up the responsibility that God has given us, given me, to care for and, and nurture the, the souls of my children. That's a, that's a sinful overreaction and can provoke and discourage them because they don't know how to live. That's still provoking to sin. Not by pushing them away, but just kind of failing to guide them into anything. That's not fathering. That's not how God treats us. And then the third way I think that we would provoke our children is just in a hypocrisy. This isn't, this fills into both of those. There's an inconsistency with instructions that we could have. Right? Like, like sometimes you have to do all these things and then other times you don't really care. It's sometimes there's a ton of consequences for that and sometimes you don't follow through with the consequences. And it's just this stumbling of just, is dad going to be super happy today? Is he bringing home ice cream or is he bringing, bringing home anger? And just this back and forth of all those things. And so, so it's like, fathers, are we just supposed to be perfect? Well, yeah, as our heavenly father is perfect, but we're not going to be. And so living outside of hypocrisy is living in repentance to God and to our children. See, only God, our heavenly father, is perfect. Every other one of us is not. And so we can provoke our children by failing to admit that we, like they, are also sinners who fall short. Have you considered the fact that just as your children need to confess to you, to your wife, to each other, to God, that you do too? That you need to confess your sin against your children to your children and demonstrate repentance to them? Or are we going to set up some sort of facade that mom and dad just have it all together and that we are perfect followers of Jesus and the only sinners in the house are the children? May it never be. That's just not true. And that's not Christian. That we would not put to death, right? A, a humble Christian father will lead and fail and repent and repeat. But the hypocrisy of like, no, whatever I did, Right? No, you can't make an excuse. It wasn't your sister's fault, but I'm upset because of what happened at work. And it's okay for me to yell at you. It's just not okay for you to yell. Right? Like the profound parental hypocrisy of yelling at our children about yelling at each other. Ever struck you as inconsistent? Stop yelling at each other! Wonder where they learned that. Now, Adam and me. <laughs> We need to strive for a consistency. We need to strive to follow through with consequences. And we need to demonstrate repentance that we are sinful yet forgiven followers of Jesus. See, fathers, parents are to prayerfully pursue a balance between that active over-commanding or overbearing and that passive under-commanding. And we don't respond to 
to the overdoing it by underdoing it. And we don't respond to underdoing it by overdoing it. We, we seek to, to walk in the way of, of wisdom as God does. And in, in humility and consistency. And both of those errors can be provoking. Overcommanding provokes the anger like Ephesians would talk about. Do not provoke your children to anger or to, to wrath. And here it talks about provoking to a type of discouragement. Because that, that type of overbearing, that never-pleasing, that soul-crushing weight of, of not being pleasing and not being godlike in our fatherhood, right, can start to look like all of that conflict. And it takes two sinful lusts to bring up a conflict, right? Where do these wars, where do these divisions, where do these fights come? Fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, because you have these desires that war within you. God does not give grace to the proud. Well, I'm going to win over him. No, he's not going to win over me. No, like humility. God give us both grace to walk forward in these type of things. So we can provoke to an angry reaction about that. Talking to somebody and it's that type of thing like, I'm just going to put my nose right in my son's face and I'm just going to tell him. Wow. That is not what our Heavenly Father is like. He does not, he does not parent out of, out of rage. He does not discipline out of a, an uncontrolled anger, ever. If he was angry towards sin, he disciplines and corrects, but never out of a vindictive or furious, I'm going to get them, ruin their life until they start to follow. It's just not the attitude of our father. It also can uh, just discourage that, right? Like how many times are you going to be told that no matter what you do isn't good enough before you just stop trying? And we can do that to our children. Better, 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 more, more, more. Do, do, do. And if I'm never good enough, why do I even bother trying? Is that a sinful response on the part of the children? Yes. But it's also a sinful provoking on the part of the father. And we can just suck their motivation dry so they give up on pursuing an unreachable human standard. And undercommanding provokes sin by a lack of instruction and correction. Why do they turn out like, well, their dad just never said, their mom just never said, you know what, this was wrong. Never demonstrated. There are consequences for the things that you do. And let me demonstrate that for you. Right? Sin, sin will hurt. Right? Sin will cause lack, and so we act those things out. Wow, all of this is going to look so differently for each child, right? I mean... Boys versus girls, and we've already experienced some of the difference in a, in a particular type of stubbornness with, with James and with Lily, first, first son. So I'm just starting down that road. I, I wasn't a daughter. Uh, I was a son, so I don't know exactly what goes on with, with daughters and those type of things, but trying to learn that. But, but the things that I would do with one child and, and what could actually be a, a, a challenging encouragement to one child could be soul-sucking to another. Right? And a consequence that, that needed to be a little bit more severe for the sake of one, like, isn't necessary for the other. So we need a wisdom. If any of us lack wisdom, let him ask God, God, give me wisdom and give me a humility, a wisdom to know, like, how, was this too much or was this not enough? Because it can be both to different children. Right? That's where wisdom has to come in. That we, it isn't just a one-size-fits-all. Well, that worked for her, so it must work for her. Not necessarily. And so you need wisdom to ask God how you were supposed to interact with your different children. And you need the humility to be like, well, I thought that that was the right thing and it was wrong. I was wrong. 
And there is that kind of like, you were wrong too, but we were wrong together. Let's go to Jesus together. Let's seek forgiveness from each other. Let's seek forgiveness from the Lord. We need wisdom. We need humility. But every father does have the responsibility to discipline his children. Every parent has that responsibility. I remember preaching this from from our Hebrews passage, which is a great passage that talks about these type of things and, and links together God's discipline with us as sons and our discipline of our children. But looking in that passage, like so many times, like we've taken the word discipline and we've just shoved it to one side that it only means like uh, correction, as in like uh, punishment correction. Like that's all that discipline is. Like there's life and then discipline equals spanking and that's it. But right? spanking is a biblical thing. Like it's there in the text, uh, under control, right? Not in anger. There's a difference between abuse and spanking. There is. Feel free. We could talk about that more. Look at those different types of things. But I think that's clear in scripture, clear in my experience uh, as, as a child, clear in my experience as a parent where, where I, could, I could harm with a word or I could love with spanking. But discipline isn't just spanking. It's not just chastising. Discipline is training. And as fathers, we need to discipline. We need to train. As parents, we need to discipline. We need to train. And we need a balance of both instruction, discipline by instruction, or training through instruction, which is, hey, this is what you should do. And this is what you should not do. So an instruction kind of ahead of time. In this type of situation, confronted with these type of things, this is what is right, telling the truth. This is what is wrong, lying. So do tell the truth and don't lie, right? Do not steal and do give, right? Do not hit. Uh, do show kindness and love and, and, and mercy, right? So that's just instruction kind of ahead of time. And then there's also training through an affirmation. Like when that happens, like telling the truth versus lying, we've given that instruction. You can see the battle start to form. You can see them start to lean toward lying and then they're like, you know what? I'm, I, they tell the truth. Training through affirmation, yes, you know what? that was the right decision for you to make. Like, good job. Like, I know it can be really hard to tell the truth. Lying seems so much better and so much easier. You chose to tell the truth. I praise God for that. Good job. Right, training through affirmation and training through correction. Like, it is a part of it. It's just not all of it. The correction of, you know what? You should not have done that and there are consequences. But without the instruction and the affirmation, how do we just get to jump into correction. Like, how do they know the way that they should go if fathers and mothers don't point them in that direction? And the only response that we should ever have to our children should not just be like, no, wrong, not good enough. But there needs to be times of praise. Good job, right? Reminding them of that first pleasing, that they are pleasing to us as our children, simply as our children, that you just love and welcome and accept and affirm them just because of the relationship that you have with them. Like we are pleasing to God, our Heavenly Father, who also instructs us and affirms us and corrects us. Constantly be asking yourself this, fathers, mothers, all of us, what is God the Father like toward me? What is he like toward me? And if you think it is only severity and anger and the hammer coming down, 
then, then you need to read your Bible better to know who God the Father actually is from start to finish in mercy and in compassion, enough mercy and compassion to correct, but not dealing with us with the full weight of what our sins deserve ever because of Jesus. I've got a few final thoughts, a couple uh, footnotes to some of these things. Teenagers and older children. So if you didn't think I was talking to you at the first part, I am talking to you now. You are still called to obey your parents in everything. Let's make sure I get all the teens. Anybody looking at me? You are still called to obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. That's why. You are still made to please the Lord. You are still called to please the Lord. And you still please the Lord by obeying your parents in everything. What about when they're wrong? Love that part, Peter, where you're talking about like parents repenting the children. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, that'll be good. Or, oh, that'll be the day. We can start, as we get older, we start to evaluate things. We start to recognize the fact that dad and mom are not infallible. That there's, we start to see the gap growing between the perfection of our Heavenly Father and the reality of Peter Ambler. Falling far short. Making mistakes. Not having all of the information. So what about when they're wrong? And I would say, you know what? Wrong is a really strong word. Maybe they're wrong sometimes, but I think more often than not, teenagers are starting to think about things. Uh, what you mean by wrong is just not what you think is best. And there's a big difference between wrong and different, or maybe not best, or not the way that I would do it. And that's fine. And it's good to think through those things. It's good to recognize that, and it's good to even talk about it at times. But we aren't called to obey our parents because their way is best, or because they have all the information or because they never do anything wrong. You are called to obey your parents because your heavenly father calls you to do it. Like that's the ultimate relationship. Wives because of Christ. Husbands because of Christ. Children because of Christ. Parents because of Christ. And then next week, Lord willing, masters and slaves because of Christ. Do we have any examples of somebody who really knew everything that was going on and acted in obedience and wisdom Living and submitting and obeying imperfect parents? We do. Because who, who had parents? Who that knew best, actually, undeniably, had parents that he obeyed and submitted to? Go ahead. Jesus. Didn't you know I, I needed to be about my father's business? And then he submitted to them and he went home. Like, I have a more, I have, I have my father. And I have his will to do. And Jesus did no better and yet obeyed them without sin to please his heavenly father. Do you know better than Jesus? And you don't obey as good as Jesus? No one does. It's why we need and have Jesus. And as we mature then, we begin to evaluate. It is good for you to evaluate. Parents, it's good for your children, your teenagers, to start to be thinking about things because eventually they're going to be the ones making decisions for themselves and for their families. So we don't want to crush that. Stop questioning, stop thinking. That's not raising them up in instruction and maturity. But, teenagers, life is submission to God-given authorities. 
And it does not come automatically. It comes through training. And if you're going to follow and submit to your heavenly father, you need to learn that through trusting and submitting and obeying your earthly imperfect father. Practically. Well, what about, right? Because I bet your heart, I remember, your heart just be like, but, but the, but the thing that happened yesterday, that conversation that we were having in the car today, we got to pick this back up. How do I make my case? I need to make my case. They, they lack this information. We're talking about that. I think we're talking about that. Fred gave this. Don't argue before obeying. While obeying, you can appeal. There's a big difference. Digging in your heels. I won't until I get my say. And then once we reach a consensus, then I'll do what we've agreed on. You recognize that has nothing to do with the submission to authority. That is not obedience. And I've just tried to live my life that way. And I want to I interact with God on those terms. And it's just not what it is. We receive from our Father. We obey our Father. We submit to the authorities that we have. That is how it works. There's a big difference then to then be like, okay, like a posh, like go, go do such and such. Or we will do this or we won't do this, right? Decision has been made. Right? Don't dig in your heels and be like, nope, not until I have my say. That's not submission. That's not obedience. But what is, is being like, okay. I am, I, I, we will do that. And even in a posture of like, I will do this. And it's like, may I? Because I was thinking about this other thing too. Like you had said, you, you said to do this now, but, and, and I'm, I'm going. Uh, but do you remember that you also said this the other day? That if we did, then we would. And, and now it seems like you're saying that we won't. Did you, did you remember that? Do parents forget? Yes. Will we respond to that type of appeal and humility? Because good, good husbanding and good wifing, right? And as both grow in loving Jesus, it gets better. And, and uh, Christ following children and Christ following parents and having that back and forth with that, right? It's just like children make parenting easy. Parents make child obedience easy. Easier than it is, than it otherwise would be. Maybe that doesn't make any sense. But don't argue before obeying, while obeying, which shows a submission in your heart, then you can appeal, then you can talk about it. Big difference, and I think that that, I will obey, and I'd like to say something, can demonstrate a God-pleasing humility and a trust in your perfect Heavenly Father. Last footnote. <laughs> yeah, last footnote. I want to lie to you. There is one perfect Father. One. And it is God. All other fathers fall short. All the time. Some of us had good fathers, and other of us, others of us had fathers who were not that great. And some of us had fathers who were lousy or worse. Some fathers sin against their children so greatly that it seems the, the antithesis, the opposite of God's fatherhood. It's just not, and, and it's not meant to be that way. But I believe that if we have eyes of faith, as followers of Jesus, sons and daughters of God, if we have eyes of faith, we can see that all fatherhood really does point us to God. Good fathers teach us what God is like. That's easy. Instruction from the word, right? Affirmation, correction in that relationship. 
When you've received that from your father and it points to your heavenly father, it's like, oh, that's good. So good fathers pointing us to God, that's easy. But bad fathers, by way of contrast, teach us what God isn't like. But also in, in demonstrating what God isn't like and showing us and our response to that, I still think that there's a way in which that shows us what God is like. Because we were created with an innate sense of what a father should be like. He should provide for me, not take from me. He should protect me, not harm me. He should instruct me, and he should correct me, and he should love me. And so when we recognize that this is what I longed for, and this is what I actually should have received, but I didn't, don't let that push you away from the father who actually gives those things. Right? Your longing for what you didn't receive is a longing for your heavenly father who gives all of those things in abundance. Right? Don't let sinful fathers push you away from God. Let your lousy, sinful, abusive father point you to God. Not because God's like that, but because he isn't. The point of this passage from 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, is taking all of these things about the supremacy of Christ uh, and knocking on our door of our house because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord over all creation, and Jesus is the Lord of our church, and Jesus is the Lord over our households. Husbands, fathers, you are not the Lord over your household. Jesus is, and there can't be two. There's one Lord, and it is Jesus. Children, you worship and glorify Jesus as his followers by obeying your parents. And fathers, parents, we worship and glorify Jesus by leading and loving our children without provoking them to discouragement. May God grant us repentance. May God grant us sanctification. And we would reflect who he is and his work in us. Father, Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your name which is Father to us. Thank you for our adoption into your family through Jesus Christ. Please take your word, make it effective in us that you would be glorified. Heal uh, wounds from disobedient children and from provoking, discouraging fathers and parents. Please be glorified in our midst. Amen.